Breaking the Glass, episode 16. At the age of 11, uh, my mother was injured while at work, and that just completely changed our trajectory personally and financially. And so at that point, it was very clearly we went from being comfortable to uncomfortable and poor. Yeah, so what it looked like was we were staying in a relatively nice community in a nice townhome, you know, good size to dwindling food in the refrigerators, then eventually eviction and staying in vacant homes or in hotels for several days just temporarily. Mm. Uh, And I think one of the most sort of resounding images I have was when we stayed in a a vacant home and and really literally just slept on the carpet and we did not have refrigeration. Instead, we had a cooler and that was our source of refrigeration. But there were insects everywhere, you know, ants, etc. And we were just in a bare house. And it happened to be a home of one of my mother's friends who just was generous enough to lend out to us for the time being before they sold the place. So it was completely vacant, but it was just extremely uncomfortable. And moments like those were were key points in my life where I really envisioned what I wanted life to be and how it ought to have been different. And for me, it was, I have to make it. I have to succeed Mm. because this is not anything that I'd ever want to repeat. And furthermore, uh, I would like to provide for my family. And at the time, family was my sister and uh, my mother. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together, we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode 16. I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. If you want to leave a review, just search iTunes or in Google for TQ Breaking the Glass, and it should be the first link that comes up, and you'll see my podcast. Find me there and leave a rating and review. In today's episode, I get the awesome pleasure and joy to interview my wife, Dr. Chantel Bonman Senkungu. I've been really excited to do this episode, and you know, I try to stay very professional through the whole interview, even though you know I'm a little bit of a clown. Uh, But we had a really good time and had fun and enjoyed the the conversation, as you'll see. You know, with my wife, Chantel, I am amazed by her as well as I definitely love and respect her. I'm super lucky to have her as my wife. Um, She's a physician, a family medicine doctor, and she's actually a DO, which is a doctor of osteopathy as opposed to an MD. Uh, Both medical doctors, fully licensed and professional, but with a small difference. She actually does more as a DO, and you'll hear about that in the interview. My wife is a very, very nice person, which balances me out, who sometimes I'm not the nicest guy in the world. But what that equates to is between her professionalism and excellence and her extreme kindness, she ends up being an awesome doctor who is loved and respected by her patients and her peers to the point that she's even been made a national representative or spokesperson for a startup company for a period of time while she's working with them. And then you would see her on commercials on TV on Facebook, all of her social media. Um, And that's just the kind of vibe that she gives off as a doctor. And at the same time, she started all this from the bottom. When she was growing up, she was raised by a single mother and they 
at a certain point reached hard times that she'll discuss that put them in a place where they were homeless, um, often not much food. And that place, as you heard in the intro, is a struggle that inspired her to not be in that place again and to accomplish the goal that she had from the time that she was six or seven to be a doctor when she grew up. She was disrespected in medical school, sometimes told that she should be in the music video as opposed to at medical school. And even as a doctor, her small stature and her young look, people often question whether she's even the doctor in the situation, whether it's patients, other medical professionals or administration. But she overcomes all that to be a powerful, inspiring person who you'll want to learn from. This is the first doctor I've interviewed. I've interviewed a lot of attorneys but this is the first doctor I've interviewed. And so we also go into a lot of detail about that, what it takes for you to go through medical school, um, to do residency, and then to ultimately to become a doctor, be successful at it. So we hope that'll help you understand those kind of things and learn and be inspired. So please enjoy the interview with my beautiful wife. My guest today is my beautiful wife, Dr. Chantel Bonman Sankungu. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you, honey. It's good to be here. I am glad to have you as well. This is actually an interview that I've really been looking forward to. Um, it's obviously, it's a joy being across the microphone from you, as well as getting the opportunity to tell your story. I know it well myself, so sometimes it seems like that's just my wife, but I think, in fact, it's a truly uh, inspirational story that I think a lot of people hearing it are going to benefit from. So one of the things I wanted to just kind of mention is that my wife is very accomplished, um, she's really beautiful, so sometimes it makes me nervous while I'm interviewing her. Uh, but she's also the reason I was able to be a stay-at-home dad. Uh, she, for almost seven years now, has been my sugar mama. Oh, my goodness. Working hard for the money as a doctor and providing for our family um, in the time when we needed childcare for our kids, so I was able to stay home. But she started from a tough beginning in her family and her life, which we'll hear about today. At the same time, she's a high-level professional. She's highly sought after by many medical practices. She's always in demand for people to want to work for her. I've seen a number of her patients stop her in stores and the malls and different parts of the city to tell me how much they enjoyed her. And when she's ever she switched jobs or not been their doctor anymore, they've tried to track her down to find her different places. Um, one or two patients have actually showed up at our home before um, to try to remind us and tell us how great of a doctor she is for them. And one company in particular actually made her the face of the company, a national face of the company. She's on commercials for them on their Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, because she's a professional. She's a great looking person. and She's an awesome doctor. So hope you enjoy the interview today as much as I enjoy walking in life with her. So, honey, as you know, we start off with the lightning round background. So let's talk a little bit about how you came up. Why don't you tell the people what life was like for you growing up as a youngster in the City of Angels? I actually enjoyed life, I'd say. Um, you know, I was raised by a single mother who was an awesome woman, just in so many facets. Um, and uh, for the first eight years of my life, it was just mommy and I. And my father had two additional daughters. And although we didn't live together, my sisters and I became very close over the years. So as a child, my mother was just an always an icon for me and a, a mentor, someone I admired very much. And so uh, she 
for the first nine years or eight years, it was just she and I, and she would take me places for fun. And her ideas of fun were theatrical plays or, or events uh, that were social in, in nature. Um, Not just, she didn't just take you to watch plays. She actually was in the plays <laughs> performing herself. Yeah, she was an actress. Um, I feel as though every Saturday or every weekend, we had at least 10 things on the agenda. And it was always astonishing to me that our lives were so uh, vivacious and exciting. But uh, often outside of the lights and the banners, shining colors, we would do simple things like visit people at nursing homes um, during our downtime or spend time in hospitals, just simply visiting people that we did not know. Um, And for me, that served as a, a good foundation of establishing empathy and just a connection with other humans. Um, When I was eight, my younger sister, my youngest sister, I should say, arrived and, and she was the spotlight or the joy in my life. Uh, She is what motivated me to actually become a physician. And at the time, you know, I was again, seven during the pregnancy, eight when my sister arrived uh, at seven is when I, while accompanying my mother to her doctor's appointments during her pregnancy at seven is when I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm. And so it was through obser- observing uh, my mother's relationships with her physicians and also de- the developing baby uh, that I found what I would consider to be my mission, my mm. lifelong mission and God inspired uh mission and calling what um what was one of the things that stood out to you that was like man i want to do that is it the overall development process in your mom or was there any one thing that stood out for you i think the most poignant element of of the pregnancy in general was just like wow you know there's there's a flat abdomen and <laughs> eventually it, it grows and along with it you you feel a baby kicking one day and then we can look at, via ultrasound and actually yeah. see that there's a life in there you know there was at one point no life and then there's life and mm-hmm. then um it's just beautiful to me to, to watch the transformation not only of my mother's body but just of this growing baby um and so i, I think it's just I don't know if that answers the no. question, yeah, but overall, really it's just watching the process of life from beginning to, um, well, continuance, really. Um, and what about in terms of the life other than that? I always ask people, were you uh, upper class, middle class, low class, no class? What what level were you guys at? I think during my youngest uh, or earliest years, I always considered us to be middle class. Mm. And it's funny because, you know, at five, what do you know? <laughs> or at six, seven, eight. But it's it's funny that you ask because it was something that was constantly on my mind. Like, I think we're kind of, we're doing well. And for me, middle class was doing well. Um, however, at the age of 11, uh, my mother was injured while at work. And that just completely changed our trajectory personally and financially and so at that point it was very clearly we went from being comfortable to uncomfortable yeah and poor (laughs) what did that look like how did that feel like 
Yeah, so what it looked like was we were staying in a relatively nice community in an, a nice townhome, you know, good size via or, or by uh, Los Angeles standards, a nice size home, and we were comfortable to dwindling food in the refrigerators uh, and then eventually eviction and staying in vacant homes or in hotels for several days just temporarily. Mm. Uh, And I think one of the most sort of resounding images I have was when we stayed in a a vacant home and, and really literally just slept on the carpet. Wow. And we did not have refrigeration. Instead, we had a cooler, and that was our source of refrigeration. But there were insects everywhere, wow. you know, ants, etc. And we were just in a bare house. And it happened to be a home of one of my mother's friends who just was was generous enough to lend out to us for the time being before yeah. they sold the place. So it was completely vacant, but it was just extremely uncomfortable. And moments like those were, were key points in my life where yeah. I, I really envisioned what I wanted life to be and how it ought to have been different or how I wanted it to change. Uh, and for me, it was, I have to make it, I have to succeed mm. because this is not anything that I ever want to repeat. And furthermore, uh, I would like to provide for my family. And at the time family was my sister and, uh, my mother. And where is your dad during all this? Yeah. So my dad during the early years, I'd say, he was consistently present, um, but on a very sporadic basis. Okay, consistent and sporadic. Yeah, so he was regularly sporadic, if that makes any sense. You know, like we could, I could depend on seeing him, you know, maybe a few times a year. Uh, So, and, and that changed over time. Uh, but during the roughest years, I mean, he, he was local uh, and maybe accessible, but just not very active. Mm. Do you have any idea why? I I don't have the specifics. You know, I, I haven't really, as an adult, spent much time probing him. Yeah. And my mother was always very... Uh, she was always very private about personal matters. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think, just protective. Yeah. You know, she she always wanted to display the best in everyone. And right. so in that manner, she wasn't always the most, I think, transparent or revealing, yeah. you know. So uh, I think, well, I, I'm certain as to, like, in, I believe until I was about five Perhaps uh, he struggled with drug use, Mm. you know, and this is something he shares now in his ministry. You know, he's a a Christian comedian and and part of what he does is go around the country and just share how his life has been transformed. But he was deeply addicted to crack cocaine, not sure of all the other drugs uh, that he used, but certainly I think at his peak, was using about $1,000 a week in crack cocaine. Mm. Um, also, he was, at a certain point, a porn star, mm. uh, exotic dancer. He, he, as well, was an actor, and that is how he and my mother met. Yeah, And so he traveled very frequently, I think, you know, for the first maybe 
eight years of my life. So that's where he was, just sort of all over. Yeah, I think, and I, like you said, um, have a great relationship with him now, and he's definitely turned his life around. God has changed his life. Um, but I know during those early years, mm-hmm. not having him there um, must have been tough, even though now, like, he, in fact, he, mar- he married us. He performed our marriage ceremony, and yeah. um, we go to his comedy shows, his Christian comedian shows, and he's great now. But I think during those years, did you... Um, those times when you were staying in vacant homes and kind of traveling different places and thinking about what the future would be like, how did you stay motivated to be able to, to persevere through that? Cause some people don't make it out of those circumstances, but you were able to obviously you're a doctor now, but during those years, can you think back to what pushed you through the challenges to pursue the goals that you had? Oh, certainly. Uh, so number one was, I always reflected on the history of our family. And so we have some pretty amazing matriarchs, namely, you know, my mother, my, so right now I'm referring to my maternal side, although I have wonderful matriarchs on both. Um, But my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was very actively involved um, in my life early on. And historically, I know that this woman picked cotton, (laughs) <laughs> you know, and Your she, grandmother. my grandmother picked cotton in the rural part of Florida. Wow. And, um, and in visiting her during the summers, it was very apparent that <laughs> not much had changed by way of development. I mean, they were literally still, well, her sister's still living in the home of their childhood, which had not really been updated much. Uh, and so knowing that my grandmother had not been a slave, but was pretty poor and dropped out of school, I believe, in the fourth grade out yeah. of necessity to take care of of her siblings and family. Um, that was one thing that always compelled me or motivated me to do better. Yeah. You know, she's a loving woman. Uh, educationally, there were some deficits. And uh, and so I thought, hey, you know, this this is my lineage and... and uh, the, these women have worked hard to get me to where I'm, I'm going. So my grandmother, who, who worked tremendously difficult, um, she served as a motivating factor. Also, um, our, our struggles financially um, in ours, meaning my mother uh, and sister and I uh, being homeless and, and seeing how hard my mother worked even previous to that without the support of a, a loving husband, helped to also motivate me because I wanted to to really succeed so that yeah. I could in turn take care of her. Right. Uh, and also, you know, the absence of my father made me strong. Yeah. And the indignation that I did have towards him just um, inspired me to work very hard and say, I will put my best effort forth with everything that I do. Yeah. And I don't think failure was on the radar for me right. until much later, maybe med school uh, was when, when I began to fear failure. But before that, it was just determination and I'm going to do very well because, because the opportunities that have been afforded me came on the back of slaves. And then pre, or after that, my grandmother who worked very hard and right. then my mother and aunts. And so, oh. And additionally, just the community in which I came, you know, everywhere around me, 
well, in the inner city of Los Angeles, it was very apparent that African Americans, we are on the bottom mm. in performance from an educational standpoint. Uh, our schools were dilapidated, if, if that's the right term. Yeah, right. Uh, health-wise, we have very poor health outcomes. Uh, and, and then just the violence that was very... Um, apparent in in the community in which I came also compelled me to say we need we need uh, success successes and we need individuals to accomplish much to carry back to our community so that we can uh, progress or move forward and you wanted to be one of those people obviously I did I wanted to be a ground shaker and glass breaker. <laughs> a glass breaker. Yeah. Now you said opportunities. Your mom hooked you up with an awesome opportunity educationally. Why don't you talk about that in terms of your high school experience? Sure. Education was something that was never compromised in our household. And so in the beginning years of school, so from kindergarten through fifth grade, I attended just a local, uh, school, uh, public elementary school. And then it became apparent that that was not the school for me. It wasn't a good fit educationally. Yeah, because they weren't that strong. They weren't strong. And I began to stand out in the classroom settings. And what does that look like? Usually uh, when the child is not challenged, then (laughs) the child is in trouble. And so for me, for instance, in the fifth grade, there was some contention between me and my fifth grade teacher because I was very offended that our spelling words were three letters in the fifth grade. I thought yeah. it was highly inappropriate to have the the letter or the letter I, the capital letter letter I, as a spelling word. Yeah. Um. Also, the letter was, or excuse me, the word was. I just was highly offended, and I let the teacher know. Yeah. That, Hello, Miss Lutton. Um. Can you please give us more of a challenge? And that resulted in me. Um, Getting in big trouble, I'll say yeah. that, uh, and punished, and not. Uh, I was I was banned from recess and had to just sit in the yard Jeez. and things like that. So my mother said, uh, "This has escalated to the point in which we need to take remove Chantal from the school." And right. so she did her research and um, got me into Chadwick School, which is a highly prestigious kindergarten through 12th grade school located in Palos Verdes. Yeah, super rich area, part of Los Angeles. Very much so. Los Angeles area, yeah. Yeah, and the country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Richest place. Actually, I think Donald Trump's, his golf course in California is in Palos Verdes. It is. In that same neighborhood area where your school was. So what 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 did she do to get you into Chadwick? Yeah, so... She she was great at finding community resources, and there was an organization like the Minor- Minority Alliance of Student Affairs, which um, gave access to inner city ch- gave inner city children access to uh, schools that we would have not otherwise perhaps known about. Yeah. Um, and so we applied through them. Uh, they sort of introduced me to Chadwick. There was a brief interview process, and then I was accepted into the school. And financial assistance came with that as well? It did, yes. And Chadwick is a school I think now costs something like thirty-five, forty $40,000 a year. Yes, I wouldn't be surprised. And yeah. uh, and you got to go to it, and your sister, you got to go through it from what grade to what grade? So I was there from sixth grade until high school graduation. Um 
And we, so far as I know, I didn't have perhaps a full scholarship yeah. every year, um, which again uh, really magnified my mother's sort of hard work because yeah. if if it were between paying the bills like a utility bill and our school tuition, she paid the school tuition. Yeah. And so again, that always was a part of my mental <laughs> armamentarium or, you know, my, my toolkit or weaponry for attacking all of the challenges ahead of me. You know, just knowing the sacrifice that went into everything. At Chadwick, I was very much a misfit socially. Mm. Okay. So you went from one place where you stood out academically to another mm-hmm. place where you stood out socially. Mm-hmm. How was that type of experience? Like what, what, in what way were you a social standout? Yeah. So I think within my first few months of being at Chadwick, you know, a couple of the students were surprised that I folded my own clothes and mm-hmm. that, uh, and that I did not live in a five-bedroom home or have a horse to gallop (laughs) to ride on on the weekends. I mean, they were really, truly um, stunned by that. Um, And and so I fit out from this. Everybody don't have horses they ride around (laughs) on at the house? Right, exactly. And so socially, I just didn't exactly fit. And then, too, um, they... They're in a community that was very much closed. I think there's been a lot of change in the, since I was there. But at the time, there was a very small sort of exclusive community that I just wasn't a part of. Yeah. And so also, I had a wider scope of reality, in my opinion, than they did. Right. And so... Because of all the stuff your mom had you doing. Yeah, had, that she had me doing, um, you know, the what I consider to be real life, that not everyone is wealthy. We don't all have nannies and and drivers and elevators in our homes, but some people do struggle or yeah. some people, you know, they do well, but it looks differently than what you guys understand to be the norm. Right. And so that difference in, in just insight often pre- presented challenges in that you know, people just thought I was odd or unusual or they didn't understand some of my frustrations. Right. Um, what kind of frustration did you have? So I'd say by the time we entered the ninth grade at Chadwick, a very substantial percentage of the students were experimenting with drugs mm. and or alcohol. And, you know, a couple of my rather close classmates or or, or friends who I was, um, well, classmates that were friends of mine, um, they, they would have regular parties and the the parents would supply them with the drugs for the parties because the, the, the rationale was, you know, if you're going to do it, we might as well help you do it in a safe place. Uh, and the juxtaposition was that I would go home, right? I didn't live in this community. My mother would transport us once we got evicted, we were uh, we we were living maybe twenty five miles away from wow. the school, and yeah. so we were living back in the inner city of Inglewood or Los Angeles. And there, I had friends outside of Chadwick, and you know, my my friends on the weekends, and um, they couldn't walk down the sidewalk without getting frisked by the police, right? Right, and and for being searched for no reason other than we suspect that you may have something on you, some marijuana or whatever. And so I was able to see, wait, 
And then there's on the other side, here. you have parents supplying right. the kids with the drugs. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was a, a large frustration of mine. Mm. And, you know, the kids just thought I was some angry <laughs> brown child in the school. But yeah. it, there was a lot more that fed into my dismay. It's interesting. Um, you know, like, I, I, I think your story is interesting because you lived the life of this disparity. Like you straddled the both worlds of this extreme privilege on one side when you're in school and the opposite when you were at home, you know, if you even had a home from at time to time. And, right. and the thing that, that amazes me is that you perceived it. Like you perceived the frustration and could articulate it in your mind in a certain way at, you know, 13, 14, 15, Whereas many, 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 many other kids don't even have the language to to understand and appreciate the frustration they're feeling and then articulate it. So so the way that they process it sometimes is not as well, I don't think, because they don't even have a name for it. But mm-hmm. you um, obviously were able to, even though you're frustrated, navigate through it and articulate it in a way that I think hopefully helps people understand why there are these frustrations about the inequities that exist and the stress that that could put on someone who was in your shoes. Right. And um, often, so I I was very involved in sports. Yeah. You know me. Like, that's one thing that drew us together. Oh, yeah. Balling. Balling till we falling. (laughs) One of our first dates was a little one-on-one basketball game. Yes, we both love sports. Um, And so because it was only my mother who was, the source of transportation almost always. Um, what my day would look like, let's say during basketball season, was I'd be at school maybe at 7 in the morning. And what time you have to get up to go to, to be at school by 7? Yeah. I mean, I guess 6. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I really don't remember. Yeah. Um, but... I had never really been much of an of an early bird, right. but I will say six. Be at school at around seven, hang out there uh, until classes start started, and then have basketball practice, which was after school, and maybe basketball practice was until six o'clock. Yeah. Um, or on game days, basketball. Say we had an away game, we would go travel far, uh, like maybe an hour away, and then be there for several hours, come back, uh, because my mother was not always able to go to those away games, although she came to as many as she could. But when they were super far, um, I'd be back to school at maybe around 10 and then have to wait for my mother to drive and pick me up. And there were nights where I was waiting until 1 in the morning on campus And then go home and maybe try to complete some homework. So sleep a couple of hours and then I was at it again. And I would be at school on campus waiting on my own in the dark, you know, late hours of the night, early morning, several occasions. Mm. Um, And so these, again, were things that my classmates didn't know about. Um, And I, I did not. I feel have always have the the words to share at right. the time or or even know who would be interested in, in right. hearing but it, it made school definitely a challenge. Yeah. Um and I dreaded nearly every day that mm. I was at Chadwick and wow. I did not come to appreciate the experience until after I had left. <laughs> but you made it through. So yeah. you made it through the Chadwick experience 
graduated. I, yeah. I mean, and, and fortunately, your sister, too, had the opportunity to go through from kindergarten to graduating high school. Yes. Through Chadwick as well, well and get the benefit of that experience. And then you, so you've persevered from seven years old seeing her born to now you're graduating high school and it's time to go to, to college. Um, right. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say quickly is for, especially for people in LA look for these resources in your city. It's unfortunate that in some ways the schools that we live around aren't always the best. Um, if you can help make them better, do all you can to do that. If it's not possible for you in a reasonable amount of time for you or your kids, there are resources like the ones that Chantel mentioned to, to get into, to be able to help you get into schools that can give you an opportunity to pursue what you want to, but there's going to be hard work that you saw uh, yourself to go through to get there. But like I said, you made it through and then you went to college. Where did you, where did you end up going to school in college? Yeah. So (laughs) by the time I left Chadwick, I was well over being the representative for all black (laughs) American (laughs) girls in, in the country and answering all of the questions about hairstyles, et cetera. And what, what, what do black people think about this and that? So I was exhausted and uh, so I said it will be a historically black college right. and university. Uh, and so when selecting that, said, well, I, I'd like to go to the best or the one that would prepare me the most to become a physician. Uh, I had a friend of mine. Her name is Kalaki, and she's now also a physician. But she went to college years be- ahead of me, and she chose Xavier. And so I researched Xavier a bit and figured that was the best school for me. I knew that my path would be college and then medical school and then residency and that the the percentages would revert back demographically to what they were while I was at Chadwick. Right. And so I said, I need a respite. Yeah. And what better way than to go to an HBCU with high performance and also leave California for a bit. I love the South. And so it, it was an excellent it was an excellent experience. And just real briefly, I want to say that y'all heard words so far like armamentarium and respite and things like that from my wife. She's got an extraordinary large vocabulary. You may hear a lot of words oh on this interview for the first time that you heard today. I'm hearing some of them for the first time. But I tell y'all, when I was looking for a wife, I said I wanted a wife who could teach me vocabulary words because I had a pretty big vocabulary. But I wanted a wife that could help me do that. So just know that your prayers can be answered oh in a wife uh, when she uses the big words. Or sometimes small words you never heard of before. I just wanted to put that in there. In case y'all keep hearing words, you pause and go get the dictionary. Mm-hmm. I'm writing them down for myself as well or using context clues. But anyway, you were saying you wanted to be at HBCU to respite and be with all the black people. Yeah, I think you're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I did. I, I, I wanted to be around my people. I wanted to know what does it feel like? to just simply be appreciated for being a student. Yeah. You know, and and be a student and, yeah. and be able to focus on studies mm-hmm. as opposed to all of these other factors. Like yeah. what does it feel like to be the majority? Mm. And what I learned was that you know, there there are difficulties in in being in the majority as well. I mean, I think you, it 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 actually allowed me to have a deeper understanding of of what white people may go through Hmm. um, and always being the majority you don't have you don't you don't sense that that the norm may be for someone else different than what it is for you because you establish the norm norms in culture norms in you know like fashion and language and you know uh pop 
culture sort of things. And so um, at Xavier, you know, there were some Asians and a couple of, of white people. And so it, it just it gave me a good understanding of, hey, this is what I just feel normal. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so maybe this is what it feels like um, for um, Caucasians. And so I would like to add, though, that part of why Chadwick was so excruciating was because when we lived in Inglewood, and Inglewood is the hood, I'm sure many people know about Inglewood yeah. thanks to the movies. Um, what are some of the popular movies from Inglewood? Uh, well, the Lakers played there for a long time. Oh, yeah. The or Lakers. The Wood was yeah, actually the name of the movie as well. <laughs> yeah. Inglewood. Plus now the Rams and the Chargers are going to have their stadium in Inglewood. Exactly. So it's becoming very much a popular city. Yeah. City of Champions. It's on the map. And the City of Champions is going to be a different color. Yeah. Uh, and so when I was there, there was a lot of gang activity. Um, there's a community nearby called the the bottoms Mm. and that was like the local apartment uh (laughs) zoo and not necessarily the projects but definitely the low like a step above yeah step above projects and that's where we live we lived just streets away from that but associated with that was you know the assigned home school was morningside that's where lisa leslie went actually uh and so during one of my basketball tournaments with Chadwick, um, I think the coach, well, coaches would, would very frequently see me and say, hey, we'd, we'd like for her to be on our team. And coaches I, from other schools. From other schools, yeah. because unfortunately, at Chadwick, and you know this may be a bit controversial, but um, oftentimes the students who got a lot of game time were students who um, their parents were contributors financially. Donors, yeah. yeah, donors. Um, and are part of booster club, mm. not to say that their their children were not um, talented on the basketball court, but I was very driven, and there was a time in which my goals in life were to become a WNBA player, yeah. a physician, and then later a stay at home mom, nice. <laughs> and sort of in that order. And so I was really determined to do well in the WNBA yeah. and become a professional basketball player. And you were a ball girl with them, and yes, I was. I did work for the WNBA. Uh, for a few years, um, and so the the point is that I w- I was determined to do whatever I could to to be the best player that I could be, and also to contribute to the team. However, I was not one of the popular students, and I f- and I felt as though the coach um, was sort of prejudiced yeah. against me because I didn't fit socially. Not right. so much because of my my ethnicity, but just social misfit. She actually told another player that one reason she did not like me, this is a coach, told another player that one reason why she had a hard time with me was because I reminded her of players that she played with at the community college that she went to. Hmm. Um, and because my, my parents were not as involved, I didn't have as much advocacy, yeah. you know, when things were unfair as right. the other students did. And so the bottom line is that I looked and said, hey, mom, we have Morningside High School right down the street. Don't yeah. have to wake up early. It's going to be easy education. Yeah. Uh, and then I can do well with with basketball. Forget the scholastics. Like that will come. <laughs> WNBA my, is coming. Yeah. And my mom said, absolutely not. Hmm. And she she never relented. And I'm happy she didn't because Chadwick was good for me in the long run. But she never relented to compromising school. Um 
And so you asked about Xavier. Yeah, like so mm-hmm. you you ended up at Xavier, and uh, now and people so people know the the plurality of black doctors in America come from Xavier University. They're trained there. So yeah, at one point the statistic I believe was ninety percent of all African American physicians ninety in, in the country came from Xavier. Jeez. Yeah. That, at one point. Now, I don't know if that's statistics. So I, I say plurality because maybe it was the majority, but it sounds like maybe it was the majority. Um, so a lot of like Doc Xavier is you're going to HBCU, but less than anyone think. And I don't know why they would, but they might think, well, if you want to go to school, HBCU might not be the best preparation. This is the best place you could have gone to to be a doctor mm-hmm. if you wanted to. Oh, yes. And they were strict. It yeah. was something I was not prepared prepared for. Yeah. You know, I, strict like how? Like um, everything that I had heard about college prior to college entry was that college is party time, and you know, you expand personally, you you have fun, you get your degree, and you keep moving. Uh, and so, coming from Chadwick, which is one of the most difficult schools in the country, um, to um, to go to, um, based off of the work and all of that, um, coming from Chadwick, I sort of had a big ego. Like I am going to HBCU. It's not Harvard. It's not Stanford. It's Mm. not Brown. So I should be good. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm graduating from a school where the, the students are the cream of the crop. So what's Xavier? And boy, was I surprised. <laughs> I could not believe it. You know, I was thinking, I'm going to have fun. I may meet meet a husband down here. Nope. And, and, nope. <laughs> and then uh, party and get good grades and it'll be easy. I mean, we were studying all night, every night. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, and it was fun. I had great roommates, um, many of which I'm still friends with now. You were um, on the homecoming court? Oh, yes. Eventually. <laughs> I was. Yeah, just because you're fine. Oh, my goodness. And so, uh, but I got there, and I'm like, hey, it's the weekend. I'm from L.A. We don't just sit around, you know, and my mother was so active. We always had things to do. I got to Xavier, and, I mean, things shut down at, like, 7 p.m. on Friday, and I thought it was absolutely insane. Yeah. And all there was to do was our work. It's like, this is not why I came to college. So was that something that you imposed on yourself or is that something you feel like the school imposed on you? So I think, I I think both of those. Okay. Uh, So I had to study because the work was hard (laughs) and that was a shock. I mean, this Xavier was nothing to play with. Right. Um, And so I think as is true with a lot of HBCUs, it, entrance into the university is easy. Why? Because they want to educate everyone. I mean, right. that's the mission. But remaining there may not be that easy yeah. because it's it's not, it's it's game time. It's not yeah. time to play. And so I think it was difficult just because the work was rigorous and they're serious about y- their reputation as Xavier University. Right. You know, they, they want to produce a certain type of student. Um, and they really did care about our education and what we learned and gained from it. So um, the work was hard. Um, Now they supported us through it, but it was difficult. So we had to study. And then number two, just the culture was, you're not going to get here and start playing around. So uh, what it looked like was the dorms, uh, freshman dorms, they're... um, Like the RAs? Well, yeah, they're, they're sectioned off. They're not unisex dorms. Oh, um, they they are unisex or they're not unisex? Not. 
So they're so, more than one sex or they are one sex? Sorry, they're unisex too. Yeah, one. They, yeah, one. Yes, so they're unisex dorms. Okay, so and there's no the, mixture of sexes in the dorms. Not freshmen. And so like there's the male dorms and the girls could maybe sit in the lobby. Uh, and then there's the, the female dorms and the guys can maybe sit in the lobby, but that's as close as you're getting to anybody's dorm room. Mm. And then we had like the, the dorm mothers is what I used to call them. And if you were going to spend the night somewhere other than your dorm, a letter was getting sent home to your parents to oh, notify wow. them about it. And they knew um, if you weren't spending the night in your room. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... I mean, I'm sure people got away with all sorts of things, but that was the expectation. Right. Um, and and again, I was shocked because this was not college as I had expected it. I mean, yeah. there were clear expectations and standards, good ones, but it was very strict. Yeah. Sounds like uh, me at the Air Force Academy. I had <laughs> it probably about as bad as we did. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So uh, on the one hand, because it forced you, it sounds like, to become a high quality student right? and prepare yourself for the rigors of medical school. Mm-hmm. What, um, before we go to medical school, can you talk about, you mentioned before being the majority versus being the minority. Are there any other things that you felt different about? Cause there are a lot of people like I grew up in Allen, Texas where I was always the only black person in the class. It was majority white at the time. So some people may go from one environment to another and wonder at HBCU, um, how does it feel different beyond the stuff you mentioned before? Are there any ways that you could say like this was a positive thing or unexpected thing or perhaps even a negative thing about being an HBCU? Yeah. I, I, number one, it was very empowering, right? Because I realized that again, I thought I was smart. I thought college would be easy and there were, there were, amazing academians yeah. at Xavier hmm. who who likely were more impoverished than I was, mm. um, some of which came from New Orleans and not the good parts of New Orleans or yeah. other just rural areas, and they were brilliant. Yeah. Um, and they actually, some of them could just walk into a classroom without studying an ASIN exam. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it was empowering to me to know that, hey, there are a lot of us who aren't just sitting on stoops and singing songs, you know, like, <laughs> Stepping and yeah, but then we can do that too. Is the yeah, cool right. thing. Y'all like can, we you can, can see walk, you yeah. can do, what do they call it? The Harlem shake. Yeah. Then you go into class and we ace can, it with the best of them. Yeah. We could do the Johnny was a, was a, a dance in new Orleans. We can okay. do everything. We can get down, have fun, but we are smart Yeah, and we care about education. Um, so it was or, or very, have, you had swag as the kids today would say. Oh yeah. We had swag, a okay. lot of swag. Okay. Yeah, and that was cool too. Like knowing that I didn't stand out because my shoes matched my shirt, because culturally that's a norm for me. Whereas at Chadwick, I mean, people had all sorts of comments for me every day <laughs> because I chose to match, or you know, right. I liked my shoes. Right. Or, so um, I, I was I was very much excited about that. Uh, we we were the cohort of students that were not portrayed on TV yeah. or in the movies right. uh, or in the media. And so yeah, that was right. exciting to me. Um, also, I learned that there is a lot of division within our community. Mm. You know, we have our own, uh, we have racism. 
amongst each other. Yeah. Like we we there's a lot of self hate within the black mm. community. I mean, one day in class, um, one of the one of my classmates asked me, "It was like, do you like living around black people?" And I just know my mouth was had fallen wide open. Right. Like, wait, I don't understand the question. Like, I'm black. You're black. What do you mean? It's whole school black. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you mean? Am I tired of living around black people? That would insinuate that I'm tired of living around myself, my mom, my dad, like you. And he was his response was, well, I'm tired. I can't stand it. You know, I need mm-hmm. a break because we're so hood and we're so this and that, but not really. Um, connect the fact that he is identifying with himself. I mean, part of what he hated is himself. himself. Um, And so there's a lot of that. Or, you know, quick to get angry, beat someone up over shoes or whatever. He looked at me funny. Um, Things did get dangerous at times uh, within the first semester. I think sometimes it was an open campus and the local community stragglers um i shouldn't say stragglers but people would come to xavier number one because xavier was nearly 70 percent female right and and so it was a very popular place for uh, men in louisiana to come and just hang out because there are a lot of like models at xavier and and just smart yeah and smart and just a lot of women a high concentration and so men would come just to meet meet us and so uh on one occasion and a guy sort of got mad at a Xavier male student, and then we have gunshots erupting on campus in front of the dorm. And so, you know, just the propensity to get violent was a, sort of a negative. Um, first semester, people got shot across the street from the dorm at a, at a party. Now that, I I didn't really get the details. Yeah. Of. Um, but but they were they were injured. They were yeah, and and that it was easy to come by. Mm. Uh, but also another good thing was that I realized that we do have a lot of diversity within the African American Black yeah. community. Yeah, um, Black people from Los Angeles very different than Black people from Oakland or San Francisco. Yeah, or from Arizona or, or Cincinnati or Texas, and that was something that was not obvious to me before going yeah. to. And maybe it should have been because everyone's from a different region, but it made me happy. Like we are not all the same. Um, we have very unique differences beyond what we look like. Um, just culturally, we're so rich. Right. And I really appreciated that part of it. So Xavier taught me a lot. Very nice. Yeah. So it prepared you well for medical school. You ended up going. You, you went to Western Medical University. Western University College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific. Very long. Very long name. <laughs> we'll call it Western Medical School for sure. sure. Or Western. Um, at Western, one thing from a, a sort of technical perspective, something people might have picked up is Doctor of Osteopathy. So you're not an MD, you're a DO. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, number one, why did you choose the DO route? Because there are a number of other medical schools you could have gone to. Mm-hmm. And what is a DO as compared to an MD? Um, and, and and are you a lesser doctor, a more doctor, mm-hmm. a different kind of doctor? Talk about that, please. It's a great question. Yes. 
In America, there are two different types of medical doctors. So there are the allopathic physicians and there are osteopathic physicians. Again, both of which are medical physicians or doctors. We we both do four years of medical school training. Uh, the difference in the medical school training is that the osteopathic philosophy is one in which we try to emphasize the body's inherent ability to heal itself. And and there's a very comprehensive approach. And just to simplify it, the osteopathic approach is considered to be more of a mechanical approach, whereas uh, allopathic is a sort of a chemical approach is one way to describe it. And so like if your car's um, if your car has a flat tire, the function of the car changes because yeah. of the flat tire. Right. When you put air in it, it functions better or as it should, and that's simply by changing the mechanics. And so the body is similar in that um, you, you have hundreds of bones in your body, hundreds of muscles, hundreds of um, just all sorts of tissues, and and sometimes you can have a headache because there's just a malalignment in the bottom of your back. And so the problem is really not the headache, yeah. um, but the problem is maybe the bone that's rotated out of place. And so in, in osteopathic school, we're taught in addition to surgery and in addition to maybe just giving you a Tylenol for the pain, we're taught how to put our hands on you and, and change the mechanics of your body, which then changes uh, the, the physiology and how you feel. On the contrary, the um, in allopathic school, it's more of the uh, biochemical approach. Um, we, our approach is, is we have an additional tool set, or so toolkit. If I could say this, that the DO or uh, doctors of osteopathy mm-hmm. um, that you are, mm-hmm. you do what an MD does, allopathic medicine, plus all this biomechanical uh, solutions right. to problems. Right. So I know how to put my hands on you to to help your body feel better. And when she said put your hands on, some people might think she <laughs> might, might fight you. To yeah. get you. you know, she ain't gonna put hands on like that. But I've seen her. She, my wife is, you know, five foot two, maybe 105 pounds of rocks in her shoes. Mm-hmm. But she can take a man who's 250 pounds, 300 pounds and turn his body in a way or, you know, bend his back or lift his leg or twist his arm around or turn your neck in a certain way that'll reposition bones or stretch muscles in your body over a period of time that'll solve a problem that you may be treating with um, drugs. And um, mm-hmm. she's helped me before. She's helped a number of other people um, in different ways and solve the actual problem as opposed to covering it up with right. medicine. Right. And CPR in and of itself where you're just pumping someone's chest. Why? Because their their heart isn't able to pump on its own or yeah. pump well or sufficiently is a way of using your hand to do what the body already does. Hmm. And so there are a lot of other things that you can do similarly to help the body by using your hands if you really understand that the body's anatomy and physiology. So for instance, you have sinus congestion. There are techniques that you can utilize to open up your sinuses in addition to the nasal sprays and the decongestants, yeah. et cetera. And well, so- I'll tell you all an example. I learned as her as her husband, we were dating at the time and we were taking care of this friend's baby who was <laughs> constipated. And this baby, she, cute little girl, um, she was really badly constipated and they were trying all these different things but my wife just um she like if you imagine your stomach underneath the ribs is a box 
So like there's a square on the front of your stomach, if you can imagine that. You just got to press up on the corners of the box or on the bottom part or press down on the bottom corners of the box for the top part of the box. And when you do that, it just released like a torrent of poop from this baby. (laughs) I mean, this diaper was so full of feces. It must have been in there for weeks. Um, But the thing is, when I had my first son, I started doing the same thing. So if he ever had trouble using the bathroom, we would. I'd pump his little stomach and he would just <laughs> let loose. So, and if you don't have to give him any drugs or, or uh, what do you call those things? Suppositories or right. uh, what are those things that make you use the bathroom? The like diuretics or yeah. any of those kind of things to help them get better. You just touch your hands. So no chemicals touch your body and the baby felt a lot better. The mom was so thankful that there was a way to do that without having to use drugs. So that's one example. But why did you choose that path as opposed to um, the, the MD route? Yeah. uh, So as I mentioned, around the sixth grade, my mother, who was the sole income earner for our household, uh, she a window fell on her hand while at work and she was right handed. The window slammed on the back of her right hand. This led to like permanent nerve damage in that in that arm and a type of nerve damage, which really spreads. And so inevitably she was incapacitated and unable to work. And so that's what led to, you know, our poverty and homelessness and and hardship. And also, though, she then required a series of doctor's appointments yeah. like on a routine basis. Um, and so I would watch her go from physician to physician to physician um, without any apparent improvement in her health. And so... Um, I said there has to be a better way. And there was a summer in which I was um, at Stanford, actually, and um, at their medical school and learning. Pretty much it was a simulation of a, a medical school experience, but I was in college at the time. And um, and so it seemed, it seemed fun and exciting, but I, I just thought while I was there it, that there has to be more to medicine than just this than yeah. what we're learning. Right. Um, and at the same time, I mentioned that Xavier does an excellent job of preparing the students. And so from month one of being at Xavier, they would release our, our so they would send students, all the pre-medical students, like letters of our chances of getting into professional schools. And these, and this was based off of our grades. So professional um, schools, including doctors, including ops, optometry, veterinarian school, um, dental school. Um, But then it always had two different types of medical school. There was the allopathic school and the osteopathic school. And I never really paid attention to to what that meant um, until I was at Stanford. And Mm -hmm. I said, well, let me actually investigate what is this whole DO thing? What is osteopathic medicine? And once I read about the philosophy and just the approach to to human care um, and medical care and medicine, uh, it just resonated with me because I thought, again, I'm becoming a physician not just for myself um, because if I were solely aim to be a physician because of personal motivation, I would have failed a long time ago. But it was really to be able to bring back um, service to my community and and to my family. I Mm. watched my mom just suffer. Her health continued to deteriorate. And I wanted to know enough to be able to help her. And so it was osteopathic medicine was my choice starting that summer. Because Mm -hmm. you felt like it wouldn't just cover the problems. 
you would also solve the problem. Yeah, and that I, I wanted to always have the the largest amount of, of information I could in approaching disease yeah. and problems. And so why not have this additional skill set? Got it. You know? Got it. Good. So working in the community is a uh, theme that you return back to. Mm-hmm. Why don't you talk about that plus medical school and uh, college can be very expensive, but you found a way to help get it paid for. Why don't you talk about how those two sort of intersected in your education? Okay. So college and getting it paid for. Um, so my mother, while I was at med school, or excuse me, in college, was never able to give me more than $5. Um, she, she could never afford more than $5 during my entire four years of, of school. Hmm. I think that was all that she was able to give me. Um, and then my dad, I think he may have given me $50 during all four years Jeez. of college. And so... Um, my aim was always self-sufficiency. Yeah. And, um, and you didn't have like a rich uncle somewhere or a relative or somewhere ready to drop it in either. No, I actually on my paternal side, um, was the first to graduate from college in my family. Wow. And my mother on my maternal side, I believe she was the first to graduate from college, but she graduated just right before I did. Yeah. Um, and so, no, we, we, we did not come from a wealthy background. And so um, when it came to college, I found myself after the first semester in need of money. We were, I think I was $2,000 short of, of uh, tuition expenses. And and I didn't have any mutual fund or I don't know any endowment to dip into, and so it was really by the grace of God. Like I mean, I I prayed. I had called my my father, and he sort of blamed me for going to college in the first place. Um, He blamed my situation on having chose college rather than just going to a community college. Um, And so that was a painful pill to swallow, but I was like, I got to keep moving. Okay. You're not going to give me money. Uh, I need to search. And so I prayed about it. And do you know, like God is so good because, um, during this time, just spontaneously, actually a family friend just sent me money. I think it was like $200, but I had not shared what was happening with me. And that was, that was a blessing. And then, um, I talked to, Miss Pearl Jones, who was a, a teacher I had, or a professor I had connected well with, and, and I share with her my situation. And she found this the scholarship money within Xavier to give me so that nice. I was able to complete um, the, the semester. Because had I not been able to, I think I would have had to maybe repeat the entire semester. Um, wow. And so with paying for college, it was just a matter of I have to find resources. And also, I'll mention this, that... Um, after returning home, I believe during the summer following my freshman year, my mother, um, uh, before I left, I think we were staying in a, like a back house of a, a family friend. And so we did have temporarily a home and possessions were there. And so when I returned, I said, hmm, Mom, like, okay, now we're sleeping in a vacant house. Um, we have no home. Where is all of our stuff? 
like where are the photo albums that I have so much cherished since I was three? Mm. And where are like where is my violin? And you know, where where are these where are our things? And she then told me that she had been unable to afford our storage unit. Mm-hmm. And so everything had been auctioned off or, oh. or <laughs> thrown away. Um, and so that, again, was a very striking moment in which um, I had to, once I got through the emotional part of it, had to just say, this is an example of why I have to succeed. And when it comes to college, it's just the Lord's going to make a way if right. this is what it's supposed to be. And I'm going to do my part, too, and apply for every scholarship. And so yeah. I would go, I think by this time we have the Internet, um, I would go online and just apply for any sort of scholarship. And oftentimes there are, uh, I mean, you can be right-handed and apply for one. You can be left-handed, and that's a special scholarship somewhere. There's a Target scholarship. There was a this, a that, and so, and I would just be very active in applying for all of them because right. I didn't want my family to be burdened by my college expenses, and I knew that I didn't really have that support. Um, so, that was how college was financed. Um, Where did the uh, the the um, Medical Service Corps piece come into it. Oh, oh yeah. The so whole NHSC. You mean the nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> like my biggest <laughs> professional regret. Well, um, except for they pay for school. Yeah, they pay for school. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So. That it's good that you asked that. So there's something called the National Health Service Corps. So I, I imagine this is similar to like Teachers of America Peace or Corps. Peace Corps, yeah. where in exchange for having medical school paid for, um, you get a monthly stipend, and you, um, well, in exchange for for the financial um, support, support you, I owed four years of um, service to an underserved community. And for me, it was like, this is a win-win situation. I get to serve in the community from which I came. Um, I I don't have to pay for medical school, which, you know, the average debt for medical school students when I was in med school, I believe was about 350,000. And so, wow, you mean if I sign up for to do what I'm going to do anyway, which is serve my community, um, you'll pay me to do it and I end up debt free. So I, I signed up for that and, <laughs> and that paid for medical school yeah. and, and where uh, college is concerned. I also financed it by just, when I came home during the summer, it was five jobs that I worked. Yeah. You know, I was doing hair, I was working for the sparks. I was babysitting. I, uh, I don't even remember. So you sold Cutco knives. Oh yeah, you're right. I sold Cutco. Uh, I think there's one other. Oh, I was doing like telemarketing. Um, and then when I returned to campus, I was braiding hair to make extra right. money. Um, and I, I think the, so I'm going to put the NHSC on blast. Let's do but, that. Let's do that. We can do that. Yeah. That's cool. Let's do that in the professional piece. Yeah. But what, what did you want to say about um initially? About what? NHSC. Oh, no. Just that, you know, I think they they really go to schools like like Xavier mm. uh, because of we tend to be 
uh, like they what target we, those schools, right? Where there's just a high population of minorities because yeah. you know likely we will serve the communities that mm. we came from, but they just don't tell you all of the. Yeah, and we'll get into a little foreshadowing or what do you call it, a little suspense. We'll let you know how all that turned out when we get to our professional career. But I want to hear about um, medical school. So now you've graduated from Xavier. You decided to be a DO because of the reasons you mentioned before in terms of treating the whole person and your desire to bring that back to the community. And now you're at Western, back in Pomona, which is near L.A. Um, So you're back near home. Mm-hmm. And and you're in medical school overall, and and <clears throat> I imagine you're back to this experience where you're not the majority anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, what in general was medical school like? Just as a just from an educational academic perspective, how, how was that for you? It was rigorous. It's 17 hours a day, most days studying. Mm-hmm. It was missing most birthdays and baby showers and family events, uh, with the understanding that that this sacrifice is temporary. Um, but I have to learn, you know, the God created such intricacy in, uh, in, in, in our bodies that med school is just such a short period of time to learn all that there is to know about the body. Um, and so there's a lot of information just packed into four years. And so the first two years are the book study. Uh, and the second, the latter two years were um, actual clinical years in which okay. you're on the hospital floors and or in the clinics. Um, now, that has changed. Um, the, the design and, and setup of, of the four years of medical school, I think, has, has shifted now. Do you know what it is which, now? In general, I think the more progressive schools, they start your clinical experience very early. Okay. Yeah. And so it's not just sitting in the in the classroom for hours. Um, as well as now there's the internet. There's a lot of online things, independent studies I've seen um, a lot of as, as a design uh, in med school. So, But while I was there, it's the traditional. You sit in class all day, every day for hours. Um, and then you go home and study. Now, so you're in class. You're not in class for 17 hours, but... How long is class on a typical day? Uh, I think it was about eight hours, eight or nine hours. Wow. And then you spend then, an equal amount of time outside of class studying. I did. I had to. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was very difficult for me. I, I don't memorize things. Like, I'm not a memorizer. I think um, I've that element of education for me has grown, like that trait of being able to just memorize rote facts and right. et cetera. But um, traditionally, I'm more of a, I need to comprehensively understand the principles. Yeah. Uh, and so, but a lot of medical school was memorization based. Well, but the, so, to remember it, the, a better way for the record to learn the stuff, to remember it is to learn it as opposed right. to just memorizing it and then forgetting it a couple of days after the test is over. You're exactly Especially if you're right. going to be a doctor. Exactly. So to all the doctors out there, yeah. learn it. Yeah. So you remember it. Yes. And so for me, it was it was challenging. Um, A lot of my peers had done other things prior to med school, whether it had been a post-baccalaureate program. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So so done other things in order to prepare for medical school, to prepare for medical school or some had been in other careers before coming or what's the post-baccalaureate? Yeah. So a post-bac program is 
uh, a program that prepares you for med school. So sometimes if people do not get into medical school upon an initial attempt, then they'll go to a post-bac program, which may be two years of essentially like mock medical school. So right. they, they are, they're trained on the test and the volume of information, et cetera. So there are a number of people who had done that. Um, but then there are also people like myself who just went straight through. Yeah. Um, but for myself, not having had that sort of extra prep, I think it was a bit more challenging where, I mean, compared to my, my good friends who I spent most of my time with and studied with. Um, and, uh, but then it made me very thankful for having gone to Chadwick because again, I was used to staying up and studying right. at Chadwick that started in sixth grade. I would go to bed at like one or two in the morning in the sixth grade because of just studying um, because I had come from the public school where I never had a book report to entering into the super prep uh, elementary school. And it just it required a lot of work for me to get on the level of my peers. And so medical school was similar. Yeah. And so in terms of school, what, what do you think are some traits, whether it's Xavier or at medical school at Western? What are some traits that made you successful that you think if you were talking to, because you mentored a number of students who have either gone to medical school, been through medical school, young doctors, what are some things you would tell someone who wants to be a successful medical school student or preparing to go to medical school? What traits mm-hmm. should they have? What skills do they need to develop? Yeah, well, number one, <clears throat> like my faith was very important. And just the truth of God's word mm-hmm. and knowing that I did not have to be anxious for anything or knowing that when I reflected upon my life and all of the things that happened to me, that it wasn't just based off of my own merit or skill or intellect that got me there. But there were several like identifiable points in my life where I know that it was God who carried us through. Mm. And so when it came to the medical school challenges, I knew that he was still present with me, and so yeah. I could get through it. And so that really was essential. Um, number two, um, having mentorship is very important. Yeah, I think it's the key to success, having someone who you can sort of run things by or just advise you on how to proceed or support you through through the angst or the struggles or even successes. I think that's really key. Um, I think... Uh, studying, like aim to do well. Yeah. You know, you have to strive not to be average, but to do your best, even with classes that for me may not have counted where it, it related to an actual grade. It's like, I want to do well. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so, so in that one, you're saying the skill of studying, knowing how to study well is important. Uh, knowing how to study well, yes, and also having the fervor to just put your all into everything that you yeah. do. And I think that's one thing that playing sports helps with. Right. Um, and, uh, it just gives you just, like that intensity, that push, that drive to make it through. Yeah. 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 And it's a, a tangible thing. Like when you feel something in your body, I think it mentally strengthens you. And so. Um, and a certain level also. of discipline, I imagine. Like. Right. You have to know that it sounds like if I'm mistaken, too, you have to have like a long term view, because what I hear a lot in what you said is you you started at seven mm-hmm. thinking and I don't know how much you knew at the time and when you knew how much you had to do. But it was going to be seven to graduate in high school, four years of college, four years of medical school, then residency mm-hmm. before you would actually be a doctor. Right. Um, 
And so I imagine some amount of long-term, long-range planning and thinking had to be a part of it too. It did have to be uh, a part of the consideration of just like this is we're in it for the long haul at the same time we're going to take today's troubles and focus on those like it's one step at a time and then I think this is something I did not really utilize much of but I would recommend is tutoring Mm. when you need help ask for it yeah or if there are ways to learn more than you you already know or maybe approach a problem differently seek out that sort of assistance. I think I kind of had an element of pride at some point, like, oh, no, tutoring is only for dummies. Uh, excuse me. It just makes you do well. The, my friend who just aced everything all the time, she would go to tutoring. Yeah. Um, and it just simply provided that extra support. I um, have a friend named Everett who <laughs> smart, sharp, young guy, going to be highly successful um, in the future as long as the Lord gives him life already is i learned the same thing from him this guy you know went to grad school had tutors for that went to you know did his graduate program for business school tutors for his you know the gmat mm-hmm. i i was the same way i was like man this is really cool i knew about going to the instructors which is a part of what you're talking about mm-hmm. but there's also if there are smarter people than you who can teach you how to do better pay for it if you have to barter if you have to find it because you need to to get through these classes that's i think that's a big cheat code that people don't talk about right i agree i agree so those are a lot of skills i mean i think that's good i think those things will help you make it through um in medical school though you had a variety of experiences Mm -hmm. i um i wonder if you could speak about like because part of this is to help people understand when i'm in medical school okay it's gonna be 17 hours of studying for a couple of years or some portion of depending on what your school is set up like but then there's the piece that you do, the practical part of learning what it's like to be a doctor in the in a like a practice medical setting. Mm-hmm. What is that like? Like, because I've I, I seen some of the stuff, the pictures, those nasty pictures. So we met when you were, I think, second or third year medical student. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just saw some of those nasty pictures, man, <laughs> patients and, you know, gross things that you cut apart or saw in the hospital that's how I can perceive it. But what's it like, the medical part of being a medical student and preparing to be a doctor? It's absolutely invigorating. Good. Why? Like, how? It's, just, it's just so exciting uh, to work in or to, to do the work that you feel as though you were created to do mm. and that you love. Um, and then getting out of the old rank classroom with the boring or challenging, just dry hours of study. But now we get to apply what we learned yeah, and then actually impact lives. Um, so it was very exciting. Um, get, and it, so the road, what, what it looks like in practicality is just uh, like we do about every month. We're on a different what's called rotation. And so uh, in med school, you haven't yet, at least at the beginning, selected what specialty um, you want to enter. Yeah. Um, for me, I had decided at seven I want to be an OBGYN. But by the end of med school, that had kind of become modified. So, um, so every month during the third and fourth year, we were on a different 
again, rotation. So it could be psychiatry one month, the next month pediatrics, the next month surgery. My first uh, rotation was actually general surgery, which Mm. tends to be the hardest, uh, most demanding. Hardest why? Because you are standing for long hours. Uh, The culture within surgery is very military-like in that the, the personality can be a bit strong um you know the stereotype is is pretty arrogant i didn't have issues um i i loved the surgery rotation but it can be challenging just because it's grueling long hours yeah you have cases that are long if you're even invited into um, the operating room because as a med student you are at the bottom of the totem pole Mm. um so they may not even let you come in to see a surgery or whatever uh, yeah or if you're in there you're not really contributing much um you may be holding a retractor which the retractor is is uh, an instrument used in the operating room to sort of pull a person's tissues back so that the surgeon is able to see what what it is that they're operating on. Right. Um, and, and so you're just that's holding that for hours. Yeah, just holding it or, you know, suctioning blood out. Or But you can learn during those times. The, right. the point is, is you're, you're pretty... You're low on a total. Yeah, point. you are. And so also you can get yelled at by everyone, including okay. the nurses, the techs, et cetera, and, and it's long hours. For me, it was exciting. Um, I didn't, had no idea about what I was doing. Um, <laughs> like, I, I was just, you know, um, a dunce, but... Uh, I don't know about but, dunce. I think yeah. what you're saying is you didn't know enough to be to feel shamed. You were just there to yeah. learn and having yeah. fun. And I always have thought, like, I'm the most important person, not most important on the team, but, like, my job is important. Right. And so I've always done, like, the best I could do. And looking back as I became, like, my seniority grew, it's like, whoa, I probably was a good med student, like a very helpful one. Right. Um, because. I never knew I was just med student. Be- you were a helpful like, med student because you weren't, and I saw this somewhere I think I just read it on a Tim Ferriss blog where he said this quote about being successful in your career. I think it's like, don't use your current position as a stepping stone to something else, mm-hmm. but just to do excellent at wherever you are and let the opportunities come. Yeah. And it sounds like you were um, you were doing that. You were like, I'm going to hold this retractor. I'm going to hold this skin back and yeah. suction this blood like no one's ever suctioned <laughs> blood before. Yeah, it's so funny. Like, I never knew you know how abased the the level of a med student is i just thought you know this is my job i gotta do it well and so um i was lucky enough during my rotation to be paired with a surgeon who actually didn't have much help he was a burn surgeon burn surgeries are pretty excruciating Mm -hmm. from a physical stamina standpoint um and you know that's not to mention the emotional side of it but um Generally in surgeries, so there's the attending surgeon, that's the doctor in in charge. And this is just the standard, so surgery, not surgery. There's an attending doctor who's in charge, and then there are residents under uh, the attending. And so there's like a first-year resident, second-year, third-year, and obviously the seniority increases your level of importance and responsibility. But generally... 
uh, in surgeries, everyone else has priority as far as involvement in the case than you do. But I was paired with a surgeon who really didn't have residents who, I guess, were available. We were at a very busy hospital. So the point is, I was like the first assist, first assistant uh, in each of the cases. And so I really got my hands wet during that first med school uh, rotation. And it was just he and I for hours on end uh, in those surgeries. So out of the, you did surgery uh, pediatrics. What are some other examples of rotations that you might do? Yeah, family medicine, uh, ear, nose, and throat. Um, you can do obstetrics, gynecology. You can do uh, dermatology, hema- maybe. dermatology, hematology, ophthalmology, just all of the specialties. I mean, there are a, a certain number of core rotations that you'll have, and then there are what what's called um elective yeah kind of like any subject you have like the yeah. ones that you have to know to be a doctor mm-hmm. and then you kind of start to pick your track is that what mm-hmm. the electives are based around exactly how many rotations um about are mm-hmm. there over the two-year period hmm so i do have lapses of memory uh <laughs> i but it's like, so it's about every month for yeah. two years okay so, so call i think 20 we had at least 20 Okay, yeah. so out of those 20, maybe not exact number, but around how many of those are elective? So that's contingent upon the school that you go to in the okay. program. So for us, I think maybe about mm, a fifth of them were elective. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So a lot of it you you do core stuff, and then you have a percentage that you get to start to pick, hey, this mm-hmm. is where I'm going to focus. Um. Where did you end up? You said you wanted to start off as OBGYN, but then mm-hmm. later it kind of changed. Where and how did your focus change? Yeah, so um, I had mentors, you know, for who were obstetricians, or excuse me, obst- obstetrician gynecologist. Um, the first mentor was actually um, a fellow Chadwick classmate's mother, Mm. um, who I'm still in contact with today. But during high school, she allowed me to spend a couple of weeks with her in her office. And she was an OBGYN, very well respected in Los Angeles, uh, Dr. Gail Jackson. And, and so I, I, I really was exposed to the life of an ob guyne well, right. certain elements of it. but um, And so it became apparent during that rotation, I was around her and then several other OBGYNs that at a certain point, many OBGYNs sort of let go of the obstetrics part of it. So they let go of the delivering babies. Okay. So obstetrician is a, a physician of like, pregnant women. Gynecologist is like women's health. So, or the female physician. Yeah. And so, um, or a physician of women, um, women's health. So, um, so they, many, it, it became apparent that oftentimes because of the rigors of the life of an obstetrician, which means, you know, babies come at any time. There's a high liability. People will sue you if their baby comes out with five fingers rather than four. And it's just, it's very intense. It's an intense field because sure. you, you know, there's, you don't want injury to the mom or baby and situations can change very quickly. Um, and then just, it's hard on the lifestyle because of the unpredictability. And so after a certain amount of time, I noticed that many 
many OBGYNs were leaving obstetrics and floating over just purely to the gyne side. And for me, the interesting and alluring part of, of being an obstetrician gynecology was re- gynecologist was really just the obstetrics. So in med school, uh, during my final year, I was on a rotation for family medicine and it was at a hospital downtown, California Hospitals, USC's residency program. And there, the family medicine physicians did every element of family medicine. And for those who are not uh, familiar with family medicine, we're just general physicians. Right. We can take care of, of all ailments. We, we're taught about m- many of diseases. I mean, we're just essentially like generalists, Um, but we treat every phase of life from birth until death. Um, And so this includes practicing obstetrics and delivering babies and performing surgeries and working in the emergency room and working in the office in the clinic. And so um, I was just astounded by the the scope of practice that a family medicine physician can do. And during this rotation, I saw that the family medicine physicians were the ones performing the cesarean sections, delivering babies and, um, and then taking care of mom and baby rather than just focusing on mom. And so for me, this was, was very almost liberating because I'm not someone who likes to be limited. And again, I had noticed that some of my mentors along the way who were OBGYNs, um, were, were tired of the OB part. Um, and, and that, that's something I saw on multiple rotations. Uh, and so I, I knew that I would probably be subject to that at some point in my career, maybe, or even if not, it's good to be trained in something else. And so it was at that point during that rotation that I decided I want to do family medicine with obstetrics. Um, because if I get tired of one element, I'm trained in a lot of other areas. Um, and so that's where that began. So whenever you were in medical school, you did the, the book part and then the rotation part. Um, can you talk about setting aside just the actual medical school experience? What are some of the kinds of discrimination or bias or things like that that you feel like you dealt with as a, a medical student? Well, I have the trifecta of I am a woman, I am African-American, and also I'm young. Yeah, and you look considerably. young. Considerably. Yeah, and that's the that's the main thing. I tend to look young. And while I, don't crack. <laughs> I'd like to believe that at this point in my life I'm beginning to look older, I feel as though maybe I'm like... You don't. Illusion, yeah. <laughs> disillusion, because on a daily basis now, I have more people telling me how young I look and yeah. more people mistaking me for a teenager than ever before. So I don't quite understand it. You're just so young, you long looking, vivacious, fountain <laughs> of youth, beautiful woman. Oh, well, thank you. Honey. But it affected you in medical school. Big time, because just the, again, the... Those three elements of looking young, and then maybe four, because my my small stature, yeah. I think, adds to it. People are not intimidated by me. Right. Um, on the contrary, people tend to feel very immediately comfortable with me. Um, and, and so that oftentimes just, there, there are not barriers that people feel right. with me. Yeah. They automatically, there's a sense of familiarity, which, which can lead to disrespect. 
very easily. And so because I was a young woman and then um, African-American woman in med school, I had bad experiences with um, my classmates. Uh, You know, the men, a couple of them were very disrespectful. Um, So, for instance, there were commonly comments about, you know, my anatomy uh, and, um, you know, jokes or people try to, yeah, catcalling or maybe even um, trying to touch me sometimes, um, which was very humiliating. Our medical school class was pretty large. I think we started off with 228 students. Um, By the end, there was less than that because medical school is difficult. But there were five of us of color. Five women, five black women. All women. Oh, five. Okay, five black people, all women. We had no black males in our class. Wow. And I like to say, and take it as you may, we kind of had three African American. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That was the five. Yeah, that's. They may listen to this, so you know (laughs) how you will put that. Yeah. So, because part of the African American experience comes from how people identify you. Okay. And so if 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 it's difficult to recognize or identify that you're black yeah. because you may be black but have you look like you're white or something else, yeah. then you're not going to get treated as though you're black. You know, so there's this thing um you may have heard about it when you were in New Orleans that um knew someone from there in the past and mm-hmm. they called it passant blanc that you could pass for being white. Right. And it was a it was a good thing to do that because they had right. a whole brown paper test, brown paper yeah. bag test. Xavier used to club. utilize that. Oh, really? How? For admission. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the, the so to get into Xavier, you have to be lighter than a brown paper bag. Yeah. So so it's been told. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And we would wonder why there are so many attractive people. And it wasn't just skin color. I mean, by the time I was there, there's just a lot of people who are super attractive. The... the the speculation was that they still sort of classify wow. entrance. Or, yeah. Wow. Well, I can see why you made it because you found Well, it. I don't know about that. <laughs> but, but you're saying now at medical school, there was this thing where different people got, you noticed you got treated differently and some others did because of how how easy it was to tell that they were actually black people. Right. So well, one of them was mixed. Yeah. One of the five of us was mixed. Um. I think for black people, it's easier for us to recognize if someone's mixed than white people. Right. That's been my experience. Oftentimes, like I've had white people say, oh, well, Beyonce is mixed because she's light skinned. She can't be black. But we know as African-Americans, like, well, actually, no, we come in. There's a diaspora. There's a diversity, there's yeah. diversity here right. and we all look different. So um, but one of my classmates, she looked like she was white. So um, she she blended right in. Uh, and then there was another classmate who was from Ethiopia. So culturally, she did not really fit in um, so much um, with with. Um, so there was my friend Monique and my friend Michelle. Now we were like American black, yeah. just black. Um, and so, um, as our, our other friend would maybe hang out with some of the other cultures who were from that region of the world, we didn't. And so, um, yeah, me being from from an African country, there is sometimes too even that division between black Americans and people who are black from other countries. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so what that looked like for us, uh, us being the three uh, black Americans (laughs) um, was, for instance, one of my classmates, 
she had a question about how the eye muscles worked. Yeah. They're called extraocular muscles. Uh, after class, we would all have little study groups generally, everyone just studying, studying, studying. And so she went in and asked a group of guys who, who we counted our, yeah, as our friends. We considered them to be our friends. She went in and asked them a question about one of the extraocular muscles. And they very confidently said, we'll answer your question when you put and, and put a five dollar bill on the table and said, we'll answer your question when you dance like there's a pole in the room. Mm-hmm. And this was not anything that any of the other students experienced. Yeah. Um, additionally, uh, in class one day, I'd have a, another classmate of mine. This is a, a, phys- a, a female um, who's. She happened to be Asian, but she asked me, like, hey, Chantal, you know, what do you think about Puff Daddy and Beyonce? And I said, you know what? I could care less about Puff Daddy and Beyonce. Like, my world doesn't just exist uh, or revolve around media and pop culture. Right. I am here in medical school right now working very hard, and that's what's important to me. Um And she said, you know what, because we look at you guys like, what are you doing here? Go get in a music video. Mm. And so because she was being genuine and and I really didn't feel like she had made that comment. It was a serious comment that she was thinking? Yeah, she she was pretty serious, just ignorant. Oh, boy. Um, but because she was genuine and and I didn't feel as though she was saying these things to insult me, although she may have, I I didn't go off. I didn't flip on the other Chantel that people may not know about, but I just told her very, um, candidly like, Hey, we don't just, I alluded to it earlier, black people just don't sit on stoops and sing all day, sing and dance. (laughs) Like to get into this seat next to you, I probably had to work five times harder. Like you don't understand my story. This is serious business here. I'm a professional like you are. It's not about Jay-Z and Beyonce. Those are just icons that people who don't look like us have have uh, really put a lot of emphasis on, but we're more than entertainers. You know, a lot of us within the professional realm work hard and that is our cultural um, identity. Identity. It's just not publicized. And so I had that conversation with her, but I was baffled at that commentary. I was, I appreciated her being genuine, but I'm sure she wasn't the only person in the class who held that sort of opinion when it came time um, to do like group projects. Right. Where you have to choose within a class session, like, okay, get with students or get with your classmates to try to figure out this sort of question or problem. Uh, Oftentimes people were not gravitating to me. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, because, you know, the assumption is I don't know anything. I'm not smart. Probably affirmative action that got me in here, which mm. is not the case. Um, I know I spoke with the dean because I did have leadership positions while in medical school. And, and so... I I became well acquainted with the dean of the school and we happened to be at a dinner and he just told me, yeah, if you all you need to do to get into medical school, if you're a black male, is just is um, essentially all you need to do is apply to medical school. If you're a black male to get in and get a decent score, maybe on the MCAT. Yeah, but I feel like he may have yeah said something silly and ridiculous like that. And I said, do you know how much? 
how hard it is for the average black male to even arrive to the point at which he can apply to medical school. Right. Like it's not just about being a black, just being black, you'll get in because, you know, then the, there, there's such a, a pile of, of open spots, uh, of not just open spots, but like of gratuity or, or, um, of philanthropy generosity yeah and generosity that all we want is to get you guys in it's not based on merit you just need to be black and so that would routinely happen in med school just comments like that and again these are from everyone from the dean of the med school to my fellow classmate um so med school was pretty interesting from that standpoint. But again, that's what made Xavier's experience even more yeah. fulfilling because I knew I'd return back to just the Lollapalooza is what you say. Yeah, the real world. <laughs> yeah. So you finished and persevered through not just the classes, not just the rotations, but also some of these um, adjustments you had to make academically and culturally to medical school. And ended up graduating from medical school um, and and then becoming a doctor. Um, what w- what did that feel like to to like finally graduate and like I'm done, I'm here i'm I'm like official now. I think surreal, likely surreal and just i I was very relieved because this had been a lifelong goal for me and you know there's an overwhelming sense of achievement in having accomplished that goal that started out like over half of my life previously to actually walking across the stage and so um also you know it was it was a rough journey in that there were times where I didn't think that I would make it because it was difficult and so to have actually succeeded was was very exciting and just the thought of okay now I get to start what it is that that I've aimed to do for so long was exciting like no more of the book stuff like let's get to the real world Um, and then to just see the um, the appreciation and fulfillment that it gave both of my parents along with my grandparents and the aunts and uncles um, was was so rewarding for me yeah, and you were there too. I was and there, you were yeah. proud. I was very proud <laughs> and supportive, and and Asia was there, yeah. a good friend. I remember and, blowing an air horn in your graduation. Yeah, and you had worked very hard to do that, and now it was time to go into residency. So every doctor, if I'm not mistaken, after they're right. done with medical school, goes mm-hmm. into residency. What's residency, and um, and and what residency program did you choose? So residency, as the name uh, in explicitly shows, is like a resident. Like literally, it used to mean that you lived in the hospital. You were a resident of the hospital and you didn't leave. Now, the wow. rules have changed, um, whereas we, when I was in residency, we could easily do 30 or more hour long shifts. Uh, now they've shaved that down a bit, um, but... Residency looked like you're working around the clock. Um, I I loved I I loved the work of residency. There yeah. are obviously some you know you're you're living with other people, and so there are as as is true with any family, there are a lot of different personal or personality things that you may have to work through. But I actually really loved the experience of 
um, being in the hospital and seeing patients and getting to know the staff. Um, I am someone who believes that everyone is an essential part of the team. So whether it be the janitor or the cook in the cafeteria or um, the maintenance person or the president of the hospital, I tried to get to know everyone and I made a lot of friends. And so it was a rich experience. And And the people who oftentimes motivated me the most when I was exhausted um, were like the the cook who used to make the omelets. He made some good or, omelets. Yeah, great omelets. Or the the janitor who would say, you know, keep going. I know you had a hard day. Or yeah. um, like the CNA, which is like the bottom of the totem pole for nurses. You know, they're the ones who do all of the work that's difficult, cleaning diapers and feeding patients. Um, the CNAs do that. And oftentimes they were the most encouraging to me. Or when I had a difficult case because we our residency program, um, we we were the only house residents of the of the program. So there are hospitals that have a lot of different residents sometimes. So different specialty programs within a hospital. So you may have a surgery residency and you may have a family medicine residency, pediatric residency, all in the same hospital. Our hospital just had a family medicine residency. But because we were in the part of downtown L.A. that was very needy with a heavy population of indigent patients as well as just a lot of deliveries of babies. I mean, we would deliver in the hallway sometime. Mm. other residency programs would send their residents to our hospital to learn. To get a lot of experience. Right. And, and your program, by the way, was the USC residency program. Right. USC Family Medicine. Mm-hmm. At California Hospital. Correct. So you finally made it to becoming a Trojan, which yeah. is awesome. Woohoo. Fight on. <laughs> and, uh, and then you did residency. So your program is where they would send all kinds of people because they knew they'd get like a really rich experience seeing what they saw downtown. For sure. And we had a lot of traumas, um, like it's a trauma used- hospital, a lot of gunshot wounds, okay. a lot of the stabbings, just everything. And so if someone gets basically for the for a period of time we were there, someone got shot pretty much in yeah. South Central up mm-hmm. to like Burbank or almost Pasadena, well, they would basically come down the California hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, on some of my difficult days, um, like, for instance, a resident one of the visiting residents because she's OBGYN resident, right? And I'm family medicine. There within the medical community there's like a hierarchy, it's right? Like and bloods and crypts. Right. Yeah. And the specialists oftentimes um, have a, a higher opinion of of specialists rather than physicians like myself who are considered primary care physicians okay. in family medicine. So in any case, I was in a case going to deliver a baby and a resident, OBGYN resident, just came right in and sort of bumped me out of the way and delivered the baby. And um, and because I was friends with the nursing staff, on certain days, like in this particular day, one of the nurses said, you know what, Dr. Bauman, you cannot allow that to happen to mm. you. You know, I am very disappointed in your performance and you didn't you need to let people know that you need you mean business and you need to handle your cases like this and you need to speak to the residents like like that and and let them you have to demand your respect. Right. But I was just so 
grateful for those sorts of experiences and that it was I, I can learn from anyone right. and that I had a community of people who were constantly looking out for me and encouraging me. So did you ever um, bump her back? Uh, she got her. Uh, there was a little retribution there. She never did that again. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never say that. And her her senior residents recruited me to um, actually join their program and okay. residency because they were quite impressed at my skills at the time. Yeah. 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 So so in terms of residency, like that's one story in terms of you needing to stand up for yourself in terms of the experience of being a doctor and learning mm-hmm. a part of being a family medicine doctor, what's an experience that stands out to you um, that you recall that was like that's formative that, that would help kind of elucidate what a being a resident in a family medicine program was like at California hospital? Yeah, there are a lot. So we'll just go with an easy, <laughs> an easy one, which is delivering a baby, which was like my favorite thing to do. Uh, the beauty of family medicine, again, is that we follow the patient sort of from beginning uh, of the pregnancy to the end, and we also become their their children's pediatrician. So there was one patient who I had become quite close with uh, during during her care, and, and I began taking care of her at the beginning of her pregnancy. And everything went so smoothly during pregnancy, and then even her delivery was going really smoothly. Uh, until the heart rate started to drop in the baby. Mm. And this was not her first baby, so oftentimes the second delivery can be a bit smoother than the first, not always. But um, I happened to be working with, again, another mentor of mine, and the, the mentor was my attending physician or the physician in charge of me. She actually delivered our baby, nice. our our Timothy, and... Um, And so just within seconds, everything changed and the baby was not doing well and uh, the mom was inefficiently pushing. Uh, And uh, so we did nearly every maneuver. We got baby out and and baby, he, he wasn't doing well initially, but we were able to resuscitate him and everything turned out fine. So he wasn't breathing when he came out. Oh, no. (laughs) And um, that must have been pretty scary. It was extremely scary. And for me, having established such a long relationship with the patient, like you begin to connect beyond just like I'm doing my job. Yeah. I think with physicians, part of the not necessarily burden, but I'm not sure of how to, to, to phrase it differently. But our responsibility is to sometimes disconnect from our humanity in order yeah. to get the job done. Yeah. So we disconnect personally and emotionally from what we're doing, but then it affects us. And there are several moments in, you know, when I have patients die or the traumatic experiences where I'd say I have to cry for just five minutes and then I need to suck it up and keep working. In this case, there was a great outcome, but I was so happy to be next to um, a woman who I, I valued very much, uh, Dr. Nichols, uh, because she, we were able to get through so many difficult cases together. Um, mm. So that was a very memorable one. I remember delivering another baby of a, a a young lady who was intoxicated or, you know, she was inebriated on some, some cocktail of drugs who didn't think she was pregnant, but she was in active labor and we were actively delivering her baby. Wow. Uh, and so throughout the delivery... You know, she's yelling at me, uh, punching me, telling me not to touch her. 
Meanwhile, the baby's coming out and she's saying she's not pregnant. Uh, And so, you know, and she would not let me do a vaginal exam, did not want me to have my hands down there. But guess what? Your body will assume the position eventually. And baby came out. But the baby, because the family did not want to assume uh, the care of the child, stayed in our nursery for months. Wow. And so during my long days on call or just long shifts, if ever there was downtime, I would go to the nursery and hold the babies, that baby included. And, And that, again, like instilled within me or fortified within me this desire to expand our family. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and adopt. A lot of kids. Yeah, so we may eventually have 11 kids. You eventually, never know. Very, very <laughs> eventually. And they'll all come at 17 and leave at 18, <laughs> all the adopted kids. Yeah. So the, 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 the thing I wanted to understand when you mentioned that is how do you deal with the emotional part as a doctor? I think you said there's a part of you that has to disconnect. Um, how, how much do you, you know, and, and mm-hmm. kind of how has that changed over your career? Yeah, I think you'd be able to answer that. Yeah. You've been right here watching me through it. I mean, I think it's been a challenge more so at certain times in my life than others. Uh, during residency, I didn't really connect so much with the emotions of patient care. Um, I don't. I, I don't feel like... It was as much of a weight as it became when I started practicing on my own and all of the responsibility is on me. As a resident, you think you're in control of everything and everything's up to you, but you always, again, have your attending physician. And that's whose license and reputation is on the line. As a medical student, you have no response. The doctor's your boss. They're in charge. They're always your backstop. They're the ultimate responsible person. Mm -hmm. So you have them to kind of fall back on. Right. But then when you start practicing, it's all on you. Exactly. And so during residency, I would disconnect momentarily by just, you know, uh, by crying sometimes, by praying, reading the Bible, talking to you about it. Um, I think another very hard time was when I had my uh, emergency room rotation. Yeah. I mean, I had a couple of them, but this one in the, again in Los Angeles at USC one day we just got flooded with a lot of different traumas. Namely, the the one that impacted me the most was when we had two gunshot wound victims come in at the same time, and it turned out that one was a one was a father and stepdaughter, and the father had, for whatever reason, we'll never know, shot his stepdaughter, who's mm-hmm. a teenager. And as physicians, we're responsible for the care and lives of both, right? Without judgment. Yeah. And which one did you have? I had the father. (laughs) And it was just really devastating for me because the entire time I'm like, why not just take it out on yourself? Yeah. Um, And so, you know, but we cracked open his chest and I'm holding his heart in my hand and Mm. doing what's called manual CPR, which means not through the chest, like on top of the chest, but actually in the chest hand heart in my hand and I'm feeling it beat and eventually stop beating, but I'm trying my best to keep him alive. Um, and, and, and that was a hard day for me, but there were experiences many like that, um, where it's like, I just need to just withdraw a little bit. Like I need time away because this is heavy, you know, as a medical student had another very memorable experience where a mom, I was working more in a rural area, um, near Santa Barbara, Marion County, maybe. Um, 
or excuse me, Santa Maria, where at about two in the morning, a, a husband and wife come in and they have a baby wrapped in a blanket and they don't speak English because it's some Indian dialect, like American Indian dialect that the staff did not speak. Right. And and they had just the, the husband and wife bypassed the security guards just to come in the emergency room. And the security guards trying to tell us that they, they're saying something's wrong with the baby. They laid that baby who was 30 days old on the on the stretcher. And it's apparent that the baby is dead. Yeah. Um, but we work on the baby anyway, um, and we try our best. And uh, parents are right there, and mom is hovering over the the stretcher, just like why, why, and you know, just grieving as we're trying CPR and trying. A, a number of different things to resuscitate this baby who from the moment I saw I knew was, you know, lifeless without hope. Um, t- and then having to go and explain to them in yeah. terms that they can understand, like, no, the baby was not just having trouble, but this baby is, is dead. Mm. Um, it was really hard because you don't cry in front of the patients yeah. or while you're explaining things and seeing the, the grief specifically for parents who have lost their child is is very difficult. Mm. Yeah. Well, you, I think you, you have to be a strong person to be a doctor and and it's good for people to know that who want to get into that profession. Um, and, and then as a professional, you started serving this national health service Corps commitment. Um, you, you had the opportunity now then to work, in some of those inner city underserved community mm-hmm. clinics as part of your national health service corps commitment to pay back the time for this schooling. Um, why don't you give like the, you know, cause it's a, it's a, it's a difficult story to tell and it's a lot of drama that happened during it. But for this, for the sake of kind of giving a sketch of it, what was it like working in those communities? Kind of, if you could, the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, so the communities themselves were just genuinely b- b- comprised of beautiful people, I'd say. Like, in general, the issues that I had on a routine basis working within the low-income sector, at specifically at federally qualified health centers, because I want to limit it to that, um, I generally had issues with management. Yeah. But the patients themselves were very grateful for the care they received in general. Yeah. 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 Demanding, yes, but they tended to be the more healthier ones who go crazy. The but the the they're very grateful. I got more gifts than ever before working with this sort of population. Yeah. I mean, it's this population who we had come to our wedding yeah. and to baby shower or yeah. who actually they still, one of them text me and Facebook me and that I've established great relationships with. Um, but they also are the sickest population of people that I've ever worked with, right. you know, and it makes sense, right? Because there's not access to great, uh, nutrition, there's low education, uh, meager resources, et cetera, et cetera. But in, within the healthcare too, a lot of physicians don't choose to work there because uh, there aren't many financial gains. There's not a lot of administrative support, et cetera. Um, but the patients themselves, I really enjoyed serving 
uh, in part because it's they're in such need of yeah. a high level of care. And this was our community. Like yeah. we would see your patients at our grocery store. Oh, yes. And walking uh, Titus in a stroller down the street. Hey, Dr. Bowman. Whoa. <laughs> like, <laughs> who knew you was yeah, yeah. Who knew you live here? Just <laughs> visiting my sister. Oh, great. Can I ever hide? Um, <laughs> and I say hide because we have the flip side where you have patients who, who want to get really intense with you. Because um, they they have some of them very entitled. Yeah, they had needs they thought that they deserved to get certain things, right? And not pay for them, right? And you were working as a physician with integrity, saying like, no, this thing actually costs something, and they could be violently opposed to your position. Yes, because we had that happen. Um, working at an office where the staff didn't like me because I would ask them to do their work. Well, when a patient came in, got upset with me, no one let me know ahead of time that this was a, a very belligerent patient. They had cursed out all the office staff. And so they say, oh, let Dr. Bondman handle it. So then they get into my, and, and then, you know, this lady, uh, much larger than me, gets into the office and eventually, you know, the plan is you're going to need some medicine. It's going to be Tylenol. She gets mad at me about the Tylenol and decides to physically assault me when I'm pregnant. Yeah. And there's no support. And, you know, because these clinics are very much volume driven as a way to generate income, the support I got administratively was you should have prescribed her an inappropriate medicine, a narcotic. Yeah. So that the, your, the administration told you you should have given her what she did not need. Right. So she wouldn't bother you. Right. So that she wouldn't then assault me and have me in preterm labor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, or, you know, another clinic workout, somebody come in and shoot the nurse. Yeah. All right. So the, the environments are very intense. Yeah. And namely because there's lack of administrative support. Like I don't really so much blame the patients, as, although the patients are, can be the problem because first of all, there's a lot of anger and people look to physicians to be, to be everything to them. Yeah. Oftentimes you're my caretaker, you're my mom, you're my sister. Like they divulge everything to us. They also are so used to being are impotent within their own communities that the healthcare venue is one in which they can be demanding or assert some type of, of power and authority. Power. Yeah. And so, and so they would challenge me. I've had patients, you know, challenge me like that. Like, you need to sign this paper right now and lie on it so I can get my funds um, because I'm no longer on crack cocaine. Oh, but um, I see I did a, a blood test and it shows crack cocaine. Oh, well, no, 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 no. It's because somebody touched me with a cigarette and that's how the crack cocaine got in my blood. Well, no, that's not how it works. But then that patient is ready to... In fight. my life, yeah, you know, and so that kind of happened, especially early in my career on a uh, multiple day basis, yeah, per pretty week. regular basis. Because yeah. we got married, your think at the end of your residency, mm -hmm. and so I saw this stuff from basically residency through now, saw mm -hmm. it up front. So it was a, it was a kind of a crazy situation. And the part that you said that people that that you might throw NHSC under the bus a little bit is they don't tell you that kind of stuff whenever you're applying for the 
the National Health Service Corps and getting on these scholarships that you could be in situations that are potentially dangerous. Yeah, they don't tell us that there are no quality control. There's very little quality control of the clinics themselves. Yeah. And there's not accountability on, on behalf of the clinics. And I think uh, that's a, for me, that's a, that's a level of disparate treatment in a way that's not fair when it's a government organization that's supposed to be guaranteeing this level of service that's right. providing all this care for these people that they should do their best to make sure that people are in an environment for success, the doctors and the patients, because what doctors are going to work there are going to want to work there if, if it's not safe. And inevitably that's what happens. That's why it's hard to retain physicians because yeah. it's just such an excruciating process um, administratively where the staff has more control over the care that you render than you do. You as know? a doctor. As a, if a patient misses their appointment at 9 a.m. at 4.30 p.m., the front desk nurse is going to say, oh, well, you had a no-show at 9, so let's add two more patients right now at 4.40 or 4.45. And it makes no sense, but you don't have a say-so. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty excruciating those you, years. You also had um, a different experience in terms of uh, where you worked, mm-hmm. where you left that environment of the the federally qualified health centers mm-hmm. and worked more so for some commercial entities, um, one of which uh, was HEAL. Mm-hmm. Um, HEAL is a different type, a whole different type of thing, an Uber doctor where, you know, uh, you were basically were house, made house calls. Can you describe what that type of place was? Yeah, it was, it was very unique. Um, the patient's, where majority of what or the majority of the patients were from an entirely different demographic. So now we're talking about rendering care to celebrities very often. Yeah. Um, and the wealthiest of the wealthy residents in Los Angeles County yeah. or very highly powered and accomplished professionals, as well as um, people of, 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 um, you know, normal economic status and all of that. But there is just a, a wide range of patients served. Um, and I got to treat people in their homes, which I really enjoyed. Um, I, it sounds cliche, but it allowed me to practice the art of medicine because I did not have handy like an x-ray machine, ultrasound, or many diagnostic tools, but rather my hands and my ears and, and my eyes to diagnose and to treat Um every age group. Um, and so for me, that was very rewarding um, and, and, and gratifying. Uh, having a mobile office was unique. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but seeing the use of technology within medicine was, was exciting uh, because I think medicine within this country is going to really change. And when I say medicine, just the how it's utilized. Uh, right now, the system of having to make an appointment and it be around based off of solely the, the doctor's schedule or the office schedule, I think will be a paradigm change. Yeah. Um, and you at heel ended up like becoming the face of the company. People will call us and see you on commercials on TV or mm-hmm. some commercials on Facebook or different things like that. And, and, and I think that kind of thing happened because, you know, you started to get a reputation like we saw for these people, patients for the type of doctor that everybody wanted as soon as you would you go into a clinic with multiple doctors treat somebody's patient because another doctor couldn't see them and they want to switch from that doctor to you um that happened pretty regularly to the point that it sometimes frustrated other doctors they were mad because patients liked you over them 
And setting aside whatever they may have felt, the reality was that you got a good reputation for how well you treated patients. What do you think as a doctor, what's, what's the thing about the way you take care of patients that made patients feel so well taken care of? I think patients really primarily want to be assured that you care about them. Yeah. You care about their needs and about the issues that they are bringing to you, number one. So what they are looking for is compassion. And one way to demonstrate compassion is to simply listen. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's... It leaves me like apoplectic sometimes hearing these stories from our friends or families about their experiences and and going in to see a physician and and the physician not listening just to their story. I mean, oftentimes you can make a diagnosis just on the what's called history or story that the patient shares with you alone. Um, But that in turn, whether it be a physician or a husband, wife couple or, you know, you know, friends talking, when you listen, that, that communicates care yeah, and empathy and sympathy. And so I think that's one thing that I do do. And it can be a challenge, right? Because we're limited by time. Yeah. Uh, but I try my best to assure the patient that number one, I want to do the best job I can for them. I do not have all of the answers, but I also am very tenacious. And so I will persist in getting them the care that they need or seeking an answer for um, their their ailments or illness or what have you to the best of my ability. And people appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I see patients not as just patients, but as people. And I think they appreciate that. And I care for everyone as though they were my brother, sister, uh, son, daughter, husband, friend, cousin. Uh, everyone gets my best care, uh, no matter if you're poor or if you are the president of the United States. And and I think that's the key. That's the key. How, so this looking young, being small, black female, um, how have you dealt with that and how people have treated you in the, in the workplace at now as a doctor? I have adopted the philosophy of this is just the reality for me. Mm. I cannot change my phenotype and God has, and what's phenotype for the non geneticists out there? Just my physical appearance, my physical makeup, uh, you know, and God has designed me the way I am for a reason. Um, but oftentimes a patient could be short of breath. Okay just have so much (laughs) difficulty breathing, they can hardly talk. And the first thing they want to say is, oh, wow, like, how how old are you? And I'm like, hey, honey, we can worry about that later. (laughs) I know you're impressed, but you can't breathe. Like, I want to help you out with that. But I've, I've seen some pretty, what turns out for me to be comical things that people do just because they're so surprised. Yeah. Um, they, they really do think I'm 13. I mean, they, they say that. Or, um, 
you know, they, they become so interested in me that they forget why they're there. And that's just the norm. On the contrary, I've had to build a, a, a strong backbone and just a level of confidence that, yeah. you know, because the nurses oftentimes are older than me. Mm-hmm. And with that comes a certain uh, perception that maybe because I'm young, I don't know much. Right. And so they treat me as such. Right. Uh, and so there can sometimes be an upside down model of of authority or um, of of de- design yeah. than is intended. And and so I, my job is to turn it right back upside up or <laughs> right, side, <laughs> right up, yeah. side up, yeah. um, to, to get things together. And, and so sometimes, um, I've encountered like a, an indignation that I feel mm. like some staff or management may have. And, um, but we you get didn't allow that. them, you didn't allow them to punk you. Right. And because my age or, you know, my gender, I see how they treat the male physicians right. where, um, you know, it's always doctor, 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 right, doctor Mitchell, doctor such and such. And then with me, it's Chantel. Mm. And so I've learned how to not feel bad about correcting that. Yeah. Um, and being a, a, a physician or a professional. But yeah. I've had to grow in it. Yeah, I've and seen you. I've seen to, you get super about it. Uh, yeah. And um, but I think ultimately it's just you know, working hard, there's a job to do and there's been a lot of trials. Yeah. Um, it's okay to, you know, to assert your authority you yeah. know, out there and give them, let them know. <laughs> Cause if, if not, you know, the, the, I think that's an obstacle that you're moving for the next person. Right. It's kind of like that woman who was on the plane, who the whole meme started about, you know, what a black doctor looks like Right. that you're part of serving to, to repudiate the, the myths or the misconception that you right. a doctor doesn't look like you. Right. And I have a sisterhood of physicians who uh, who are going through this with me. Yeah. You know, so it's not unique to me, but you know, my best friend Astrid pediatrician who we're probably the same stature. Yeah. We argue about who's bigger right. or who's She's heavier. A <laughs> uh but she she comes across it as well. Yeah. Um, You're persevering well. I um I wanted to ask you to like you, you're outside of work you also volunteer for a number of organizations um in the community including the Charles Drew um uh, medical society um as long as the association of black women physicians you volunteer for the association of black cardiologists um why and, and not just volunteered or participated in them but been officers in some of these organizations on their executive staff why do you lead and and serve in this way in these types of organizations? And what about them is DC is valuable? I think each of the organizations you mentioned is geared specifically towards improving the health of uh, African American community, as well as increasing the numbers of African American physicians within medicine. Yeah, and so um, there's a legacy. Uh, that these organizations will leave and and I feel a responsibility to contribute to that now obviously our procreation sort of has limited the the kids yeah the level of my my involvement I think earlier on like med school etc I, I got my hands a lot more dirty in community service yeah. um, 
But it's just the mission. If we don't do it, who will do it? Yeah. You know, if we aren't raising money to give to medical students or to high school students who aspire to be in medicine or what have you, who will do it? Yeah. Uh, and then it's important for for kids to see faces that look like them so mm. that they can aspire to do things other than than what they think they're capable of. Right. You know, one of my mentees, his belief was that black men never survive past the age of 17. Yeah. Um, and so he really thought, well, what's the purpose of my life? I can do what I want to do. I can beat up who I want to be. I can beat up who I'd like to beat up. I can get assaulted. It doesn't matter. I'm going to end up dead or in jail anyway. So spending time with someone like that was important because he's like, wait, you're beyond 17. You're not a male, but there are, there are black people who do better than what I'm used to seeing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's really good. And I, I appreciate that you're doing this because that's the same heart of this show is to show that there are people other than what you expect to be involved at a level that's of high excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, one more um, personal question in terms of you mentioned having kids and stuff a lot. Um, what would you say is the, the top challenge of being a mom and a doctor? The guilt that's felt when I'm away from mm-hmm. the kids because the responsibilities are similar actually in both arenas. Mm-hmm. Like our purpose is to, to nurture and to love and to extend ourselves and, and sacrificially in both aspects. But when I'm at work, I'm thinking about home and taking care of my kids and being away from them and taking care of you, being away from you. Uh, and then at home, it can be a challenge, like thinking about all of the or turning off the all of the responsibilities that I know await me at work. Or did I adequately t- treat this patient or, you know, did I remember to do this or that? So I think that's the biggest challenge. I think you've handled it well thank and you. Um, takes teamwork to make the dream work. Yes. And you've been, been happy. an excellent husband. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I've been at home trying to hold down the fort for a little while. Um, and now you're getting an opportunity to have more of a flexible type of uh, career later on where you design the time yourself so you can spend more time with the kids, which is so. good. Yeah, I hope so, too, because I love the kids. Man. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, they, they it's definitely a challenge being a parent and, and working together is certainly important um, to make it happen. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the one doctor, I think her name was Gail something, who was the mm-hmm. OBGYN. What other mentors have you had um, as a doctor? Uh, So another very important person in my life uh, was Randy Simmons. Mm. Yeah. And so he was the first Los Angeles PD SWAT officer to be murdered while in the line of duty. Uh, And so, um, but I spent hours on end with him as a teenager and maybe some part of college, uh, not much, but um, just doing community service and like mission-based missionary work within the projects of Los Angeles. So what did that look like? We were doing Bible studies with the kids. Um, We'd have um, events where we're singing songs, praise and worship. We'd spend time praying with them, um, you know, having fun, like, game times and sort of recreational events, but he taught me how to really just love people. Yeah. Um, and he taught me also to not fear death Hmm. and to love God with all of your heart 
And and so he was a big mentor for yeah. me. And this yeah. is a guy who 10,000 people were at his funeral in L.A. I mean, they yes, shut down uh, L.A. People came from across the world. So least. his life for his life he served for God was an impact internationally. Exactly. That's what I kind of learned from seeing him and knowing him. Yeah, exactly. And Any other mentors that you have? Um, yeah, so I've had several. I would say, like, off of the top of my head, that the most poignant ones. I mean, I had Dr. Nichols, who I uh, mentioned earlier, and who went from training me as a med student to training me as a resident to then delivering our own baby. Um, And she also mentored me through some of my most difficult times um, as a professional. Right. Um, And I think she she served as a big one. Um, You have been a great mentor to me as my husband and friend, and it's such an honor to be on your show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is very fun, and and I am really... uh, grateful that i'm able to speak and be a a uh what would you glass breaker oh a glass breaker yeah Yeah. on your show yeah it means a lot so yeah and i mentioned earlier my mom yeah yeah i mean she was a big one she taught me how to how to love um she taught me how to um give sacrificially and she taught me how to um, not hold a grudge and how to put your children, like mm. to value them very highly. Um, she, she taught me what it is to be, um, to purely live your life and trusting that it's in God's hand. Yeah. Yeah. And I not agree. your own. And she taught me how to suffer. Yeah. How to suffer long Yeah, through relationships, um, physically, and how to suffer without complaining. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I owe so much to my mother, who's no longer with us, yeah. right, because she died two years ago. Um, but I feel so blessed to have had her as as a mentor. Mm. Yeah. And additionally, there's my godmother, Gail, who is my mother's best friend. She's taught me so much about life and marriage and been very supportive. And lastly... There's my father. Our relationship was actually redeemed, and he's a wonderful man. I consider him to be one of my best friends. He's a great grandfather. I've learned so much from him in life. Let's see. What are three books that you would give as a gift? Yes. So, as you know, I'm not really much of a recreational reader. Not of books, Uh, but you do a lot of... of books. Yeah, I read a lot of just, like, medicine-related periodicals. Why? Um, Because I feel so responsible for the care that I give, and I need to stay up to date. And there's so much to learn and to know all the time. Like, I need to constantly be quizzed and just reading. Yeah. Um, One of my mentors in medicine, this is another one, a male physician, Dr. Wonski, um, his motto was, you have to read an hour a day. Now, I don't really do that as far as medicine, just to to keep abreast. Um, But um, for that reason, I'm not really (laughs) much of a, like, a sort of a... um, a reader just for pleasure, although I plan to start. Plus, the kids got in the way. So, <laughs> uh, but the Bible, number one, for yeah. sure, that's the living water. Yeah. Okay, and and um, number two, I think the Excellent Wife was a, a great book for me, not just as in teaching me how to be a wife, um, but just 
in general, like just a servant. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was very helpful. Well, you are an excellent wife. Oh, thanks. <laughs> very excellent. Yeah. Um, what do you do for fun? So, uh, play with the kids, uh, dress them up, <laughs> um, watch sports with you. Yeah. Um, I like to play sports. So basketball, football, I mean, my, my hands are itching to get another ball so I could dunk on you like Uh-oh. I did last time. I like all sports. Um, and just hanging out, really, yeah. just lounging. Spending time um, with friends, I know. Yeah, friends, yeah, and family. Uh, Cassandra is one of my best friends. Yeah. We're not, <laughs> yeah. I like hanging out with friends. Yeah, no, that's yeah. really good. That's very good. Um, and if people want to find you online, and if you want people to find you online, where's a good place to find you? That's a great question. I think... Pers- for a personal sort of engagement, I'm on Facebook, I'm on uh, Instagram, uh, but I also have a LinkedIn profile. Okay. Uh, I can be emailed directly. Yeah, I'll put your email uh, Okay, there. so you, we won't do that. <laughs> but the, so they can get you on LinkedIn if they want professional networking type of stuff. Yeah, I need to update it. Okay. It's a little archaic, the okay. information there. So yeah. Facebook, Instagram, Sugar Update, LinkedIn is a good place to find her. Um, well, this has been a fun interview. Great. I hope the listeners will consider that as well. Oh, I'm sure yeah. they will. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, there's people out there that have been waiting for a while for this interview. Yeah, good. I'm glad we had the chance to do it. Me too. Well, I love you, honey. Aw. And thank you for being on my show today. My guest today has been Sean, Dr. Chantel Bonman-Sankungu. Chantel, thank you for being on the show. Uh, you're welcome, and I love you too. <laughs> <laughs>